As we begin this morning, I'd like to read, as we go to prayer, Psalm 122. This is a psalm that I'm sure you read from time to time, but it's good to be reminded of. Psalm 122, we read these words, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for their thrones were set for judgment. The thrones of the house of David pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Father, we're so grateful that you are the Lord of all creation, the Lord of all ages, the Lord of our hearts, and the Lord of this world. And Father, as we think of Jerusalem and, and the thousands of years of its existence and the wars and the rumors of wars and the tragedies and the joys, we do pray for the peace of that city. In our day and age, that seems like an impossibility. And of course, without you, it is. It's only through God that peace can come. The city of peace, Salem, Shalom. Father, we pray that the peace that comes through Jesus Christ, our Savior, will reign supreme not only there, but in our hearts. And Father, that we will be agents of peace in this world, that you will help us with our natural inclination towards aggressiveness maybe, or irritability, or whatever it may be, to, to become people of peace in each and every situation, that the, that the peace of God will be seen and spread abroad. Lord, bless today in our study of your word. I pray that each of our hearts will be open to hear what you have to say to each of us. And Lord, as thy word, as your word is proclaimed here uh, on this premises and through the city of Reading and the state of California and around the world, we ask that you will be exalted this day and your kingdom will be advanced. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel, verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what, you do, what, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is the consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. No one of the servants now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. 
One of the things we see from this passage is how a man who is consecrated to God and is chosen as God's servant can lie through his teeth. The remaining chapters of, of this book of 1 Samuel, beginning with this chapter here and, and through the end of the book, focus on Saul's relentless pursuit of David. Uh, Saul, as we've already noted, is absolutely paranoid and, and afraid that David's going to take his throne from him and, of course, replace his son Jonathan as heir to the throne because this was the word of Samuel to him. As I mentioned last Sunday, these chapters probably describe to us the last 10 or 15 years of the 11th century before Christ. So, you know, roughly 3,000 years ago, these events were transpiring. Imagine, can you, can you, can you visualize 3,000 years? No, as we study history, we can talk about all the founding of Rome and Julius Caesar and all these people, and we can almost think of them as if they're contemporaries, and yet they lived so long ago. With no other place of refuge easily accessible, David had no longer could go to Jonathan, and David could no longer run to Samuel, and there was no other place for David to go. He couldn't go home because Saul would be searching there, so he flees to the tabernacle, not, not to stay there, not to hide there, but to request some aid. Now, we, we discover that Ahimelech, the priest, sees him coming, and through Ahimelech's mind, a lot of things are running. He knows this is David. David is coming alone. Why is David coming alone? Uh, he knows that there's been a falling out between David and Saul. This is, of course, spread through the land. Everybody has known that, that Saul has become very jealous of his commander-in-chief. David came, and as, as Ahimelech came out, the Scripture says he came out trembling. Why are you here, David? kind of idea because, you know, he doesn't really know if it's a very good thing for him to be seen with David knowing that David's in bad light with the king and as it turns out, it wasn't a good thing. David came seeking bread. More than bread as we'll see, but seeking bread at least. The only bread that was available according to Ahimelech here was there was no ordinary bread available, he said, but there was the bread of the presence, the showbread. That, and we read about that in Leviticus chapter 24 last time. It was the 12 loaves that were put out in honor of the 12 tribes uh, as thanksgiving to God. And, and the bread was supposedly only at, eaten by the um, priests. But David asked for bread and, and he said, all right, the only bread here is this. But you think about this minute for a minute. Why did he say that? Well, sure, in the tabernacle, this was all that was available, but the tabernacle was at Nob. Nob was a town. In the town were other people. As we'll discover towards the end of the chapter, the wives and the children of, of the priests all lived in this town. And, and so why didn't he say, well, hang on for a minute, just sit down, David, and I'll send in, into town and we'll, we'll get you some bread. No, he doesn't say that. He says, well, the only bread here is the bread of the presence. Ahimelech offered the bread to David upon one uh, prerequisite, and that is that his men had kept themselves from women. Now, we have to understand that he is not in any way implying that women are, have cooties or something like that, and therefore you can't have the bread if you've been near them. What he is, of course, saying is if the men have kept themselves from recent sexual intercourse. And as I mentioned to you last time at the end of class, we, we came to a screeching halt there. Uh, uh, I want to just emphasize it again. He is really implying that they have kept themselves from sexual immorality. Is really the ultimate thing that is, he's implying here. Because it was very common for soldiers who were on the move and who, who were no longer at home to do things they would not do at home when they were outside the context of, of their... Um, normal relationships, their families, and so forth. 
And of course, we understand that even today. What, what is it? The uh, traveling salesman has a bad reputation often in our society because he's away from home, away from family. He's off somewhere where nobody knows him and, and who knows whatever uh, he can get himself involved in. And so that's what Ahimelech is really implying here. And then the last thing we read was from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where the scripture makes it so clear that although sexual immorality is not the only factor, it is a very large factor in determining one's sanctification or not. If one practices sexual immorality, the direct implication is there is no sanctification in that life. But one who is sanctified, in whom the Spirit of God is living and, and walking and moving and using that person, then sexual immorality will not be part of that person's life. And, and you find this all through Scripture. Um, from the very beginning through the end, because there's a close parallel, as we know, between the husband-wife relationship and the, and the God and soul, the God and church relationship, Christ and the church relationship. And it's not an accident that God made this the, the comparison, the uh, parallel. Well, David responds very interestingly here to Ahimelech's uh, uh, statement. He says, well, even when we're on ordinary missions, when we're on ordinary missions, ah, my men keep themselves holy. And that is they abstain from sexual relations when they're on business, doing the work of, of God or of the king. And then he goes on to say, this being so, how much more now that they're on this special mission? He's invented this whole thing. First of all, he doesn't have any men with him. Second of all, he's not on a mission. And third of all, he's not commissioned by the king to do anything. He's running from the king. But he's giving Ahimelech uh, all this, this false information, and Ahimelech's buying it. And we, we discover here that although David does not explain at all what this special mission is, Ahimelech is satisfied. Okay, well, David has said his men have kept themselves. Okay, I'm going to give him the bread of the presence, which he does. And David takes the bread of the presence, and David eats the bread of the presence. The real meaning of the Sabbath. He refers to this exact event. Let me read from Matthew chapter 12. Beginning at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 12. At the time Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, and how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's, I think, important for us to remember. God didn't create a bunch of rules for the sake of rules. All of God's rules, the, the whole Old Testament and all the commandments are there, were made for man. They were made for men and women, so that men and women might know what it is to walk with God. What, what is it that God demands of us? What, what is it that makes us God-like? We know because Paul later in his epistles tells us that the law was a tutor. The law was the one that showed us that we fell short of the glory of God. 
and how much we needed the mercy and the compassion of God and how much we needed the atonement that came through Jesus Christ. So it's all there to teach us and it's all there for our sakes, not because God just set, thought up, well, let's see, what would be really hard rules for people to follow and just made all these rules? All of the Ten Commandments, if you look at them carefully, teach us how to be like God, how to really bless one another, how to have right relationships with one another, and how to be fully human. They are not at all limiting of what it truly means for us to be human. But of course, worldly people see it that way. Because in the world, everybody wants to do their own thing. I've got my rights and I'm going to do this. And of course, we know what that's like in our society today. And so they look at the Ten Commandments as very restrictive. But what they really are is liberating, just as the law of Christ is truly liberating. The writer here in 1 Samuel, possibly Samuel himself, inserts verse 7 as a kind of a parenthetical statement here. Remember in verse 7, now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, and the chief, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Why, why does he say this? What, what difference does that make? You know, it's like if you went to the store and bought some stuff, and, and somebody wrote about that, also said, well, and also Joe Blow happened to be there that day. You know, so <laughs> David had no direct relationship with Doeg, even though he did notice, we, we don't, it isn't said that here, but later on we discover in, in the next chapter, he did notice that Doeg was there, and he was a little bit concerned when he saw him, but he didn't, that didn't change his activities. This is included here so that we'll understand the background for the tragedy that we'll read about as we move a little bit further along into the next chapter of what happens to the priests. Why was Doeg there? It says he was detained before the Lord. What does that mean? Doeg was an Edomite. You remember that the land of Eden, <laughs> Eden, Edom, Edom is way down off the, almost off the bottom of the map here. It's, it's south of the river here. Moab is up in here, and then Edom is down further here to the south. Some of you are familiar with the rose red city of Petra. Uh, some of you may have been there, or at least you've heard about Petra, the city of the Nabataeans, which was established many, many years ago. But this was in the land of Esau. Esau was the father of the Edomites, uh, the people of, of red, redness. And the Edomites were pagans. Although they were cousins of the Israelites, they were pagans. They did not worship Yahweh. In fact, later on, when Herod the Great was ruling the land at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, Herod the Great was an Idumean. Idumea was the name of Edom at the time of the New Testament. And so he was only part Jewish, and he was part Idumean, uh, pagan Edomite. And so this particular person was in Saul's employ as his chief shepherd. You think of a king having a chief shepherd, what, what kind of a king is this, you know? But nevertheless, this guy, why did he pick him? Well, we, we don't know. It's, it's not explained to us. But this man will play a very important role in what happens in the 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel. It, it proves to be disastrous. But why was this man here? It says he was detained before the Lord. What does that mean? We, well, we don't know. It could be that because he was chief shepherd, he was serving Saul, that he felt he ought to become a proselyte, you know, and at least seem to be converting to Judaism, uh, to, to the Judaism, 
<laughs> Judaism as we think of it didn't exist yet, uh, but to the Hebrew faith. And so he may have been checking into what it meant to be a proselyte. What, did I have, what do I have to go through in order to become a proselyte to the faith and ultimately become like a Jew? That may have been the reason he was there. It, we're not uh, told. We're going to discover, however, in the 22nd chapter that it must not have taken. <laughs> if he did try to become a proselyte, he didn't really, it didn't happen in his heart. It was only on the outside. Commentator Matthew Henry gives us a thought-provoking interpretation Concerning David's statements here, he says this, David did not behave like himself. He told Ahimelech a gross untruth that Saul had ordered him business to dispatch, that his attendants were dismissed to such and such a place, and that he was charged to observe secrecy. This was all false. It was ill done and proved a bad consequence, for it occasioned the death of the priests of the Lord as David reflected upon it afterwards with great uh, regret. David was a man of great faith and courage, and yet now both failed him. And he fell thus foully through fear and cowardice, and both owing to the weakness of his faith. Scripture teaches us very plainly that the just shall live by faith. It teaches us that without, without faith it's impossible to please God. And yet faith does not come in uh, measurable quantities. It's not something that you and I can take in and from now to the rest of our life we have this quantity of faith and we add other quantities as we go along. Our faith can wax and wane. Our faith can wax and wane not, not you know, because God is causing it to do so, but because of our own weaknesses, of our failure to be people of prayer, of our failure to be people of the word, of our failure to commit to serve God and to fulfill the vows that we make. Um, I don't know about you, but I've found in myself that I can do some things sometimes and I sit down and wonder, why in the world did I do that? It's, it makes no sense. You know, it's, it's inappropriate or whatever it might be. And uh, I, we are just uh, fickle people sometimes, capricious. And so it was with David, a man of great faith who, who in the power of God went out and slew a giant that nobody else could slay. And, and he gave God the honor and the praise. And, and he has served God valiantly and brilliantly. And now he does this act of cowardice? Well, we know this isn't the last one he does, is it? Let's read on in the 21st chapter at verse 8. And David said to Ahimelech, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is none, no other here except it. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of, the, of this one day, one, this one, as they danced and uh, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens, ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. That must have been attractive. <laughs> then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving like a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to, 
to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? David received the bread. David asked for a weapon. David was skating on very thin ice when he told Ahimelech that he had to leave so quickly on the king's business that he forgot to bring his weapons with him. Oh, really, now. That's almost like walking out the door without your clothes on. You know, oh, I forgot my clothes because I was in such a hurry. There's certain things you don't forget, especially if you're a military man. Ahimelech had to want to believe that to actually accept David's statement as true. Ahimelech was not a dummy. Now, the priests normally did not participate in warfare. Therefore, there were no weapons available. Now, were there any weapons available in the town of Nod? Possibly, but probably not, since it was a priest town. And everybody who lived in there were the priests and their families. But there was one weapon available, and that, of course, was Goliath's sword. The last time we heard of Goliath's weapons, his sword and spear and other things, that David had taken along with Goliath's head after he had defeated Goliath, he had taken him to his home. We read that at the end of the 17th chapter of this, this book. We read that David had taken all Goliath's weapons to his home, to his tent, it says. There. So how in the world did this sword end up in the tabernacle? Well, I think the only thing we can assume from this is that David, as an act of thanksgiving to God, had donated the sword to the tabernacle, probably for safekeeping. He had put it there. And uh, as, as a word of praise to God for what he had enabled him to do in having victory over this man, Goliath. It was wrapped in a cloth, I'm sure partly so it wouldn't look so dangerous uh, there, and, and was put behind where they stored the uh, ephod. It was the only weapon available. And so Ahimelech said, well, you know, you're the one that took it. It's yours if you want it. Satis David replies with great satisfaction concerning that. He says, there's no sword like it. Of course, what he meant was there was no sword of that size. You know, Goliath was a big man. He had a big sword. It was very, probably very wonderfully embellished. Uh, you know, a man of the arrogance of Goliath wouldn't be carrying around just a Saturday night special kind of sword. He'd have a sword with all the fancy stuff carved on it, you know. It would be, uh, <clears throat> you know, like the Western guys who used to put notches in their guns uh, or the pilots in World War II who put you know, the stamps of German or Japanese planes they had shot down on the outside of their aircraft. But to David it was more than that. It was more than a large sword. It was more than a beautiful sword. It was a sword that had special meaning to him because it symbolized the victory that God had given to him miraculously over Goliath. There's no sword like it, he says. I'm glad to have that sword. Victory which he had had over Goliath was greatly overshadowed by the fact he was being pursued by, by Saul. And so he gladly accepts the sword. Again, I have to remind you, remind ourselves that David could not have been a child here or at the time he slew Goliath because Goliath's sword would have been an outsized sword, much bigger than anybody else's sword, and yet David carried the sword off along with the spear and, and all the armor and everything else that Goliath had, and now David is even going to carry the sword with him and use it as a weapon. David was a full-grown adult man. It seems incredible. I mean, this passage, as some of you laughed at part of it, it really is an incredible passage when you think about it, that David uh, takes off and goes down to Gath. 
Let's, let's check these places here. First of all, uh, David was at Gibeah. That's where Saul's uh, capital, that was Saul's capital, even though he didn't have an official built palace or anything there. He, he, that was his capital city. Nob is not shown in here, but Nob was right about, well, I can't hold still enough to put it there, but Nob was right about there. About three miles to the southeast of Gibeah and uh, about three miles northeast of Jerusalem was the little town of Nob, which was where the tabernacle was. The, the uh, Ark of the Covenant was still over here at Kirith-Jerim, where it had come after it had left the Philistine hands, and it hadn't traveled from there up to this time. Gath is over here. And so uh, they have a question mark here for Gath because the exact location of Gath, even to this very day, is a little uncertain. We have been to the land and we've seen the, uh, the flat-topped hill. They're very common over there. The tells, they're called, where uh, towns were built in times past and excavation has happened. But they have not yet been able to prove beyond a doubt that Gath is right here. But that's approximately its location. Other cities are better known, particularly like Ashkelon over here. If you take the National Geographic, you know that are very earlier this year, they put out a, an edition in which a whole article was on the city of Ashkelon and its history here, right on this city here, which is one of the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. So David, anyway, is fleeing down over here to Gath to get away from, get away from Saul. So here is David fleeing from Saul, fleeing to Israel's implacable foe, the Philistines. Not only that, what city does he choose to go to? Gath. Do you know anybody that came from Gath? Yeah, Goliath. <laughs> Goliath came from Gath. So he's going to Goliath's hometown carrying <laughs> Goliath's sword. Now, to me, it sounds a little bit like the old frying pan to the fire routine. You know, you're fleeing from Saul, but you're going actually to Gath. It's like going in there and teasing the lion. All right. It's a good thing to do. Now, it's possible because several years had passed since uh, David had slain Goliath that he hoped he wouldn't be recognized. <laughs> and, and, and what is he going there for? So that he and his men might be hired as mercenaries and, and to serve the Philistines. They, they will do this again later. But, of course, we discover this is not the case. Not only did some of Achish's courtiers recognize David, they, they remembered the little song. Oh, yes, this is a song that was sung about this uh, fellow. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of what? Philistines. <laughs> now, since he had slain Goliath, we read several passages which said that David led the, the army of Saul out into victory over the enemies of Israel, and generally that enemy was the Philistines. And we've read even one account where he defeated the Philistines and he utterly routed them, chased them all the way back home and slaughtered thousands of them. Seems a little incredible, really incredible, that David could have hoped to serve the Philistines incognito. It reminded me of an event in history, rather different event, but as, as silly in terms of trying to be incognito as this. Back around the year 1700, there was a czar in Russia whose name was Peter. Peter I, Peter the Great. And Peter decided that he wanted Russia to have a navy. 
and he wanted to build good ships, so he decided he would go to Holland and to England, which built the finest ships in the world at that time, and he would learn how to build ships, and he'd take a bunch of, of his carpenters and shipwrights with him so that they would learn the Dutch and the English ways of building ships. Now, Peter the Great was a very unusual Ru uh, Russian czar. He was a hands-on guy. He, virtually every trade he practiced. Well, in his growing up years, he became a mason, he became a carpenter, he became a shipwright, he became an ironmonger. He did all these things because he had the ability to do it. And he, he built his first boat when he was 16 years old, a sailing ship which he sailed on a local lake. And, and so he went there uh, disguised, incognito, he went there to, to learn. No, nobody was supposed to know that the Russian Tsar was with this mission. Now let me tell you one thing about Peter that makes this a little bit silly. Peter was a huge man. Peter was close to seven foot tall, and he was built accordingly, built like a lineman, you know, a really big guy. Strong. I mean, he was known for actually when somebody tried to assassinate him, he just took the guy up and broke him in half, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, can you imagine? Oh, this is just one of our workmen. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure. Everybody knew this was Peter. Uh, but they pretended. They went along with the, with the pretense here because uh, they didn't want to offend the Russian Tsar. But everybody knew who he was. Well, it's the same way with David. He walks right into Gath with glass sword and said, well, you don't know me. <laughs> no, not at all. I've just routed your men and killed thousands of you, but no, you don't know me. Even some of the Philistines referred to him as king of the land. King of the land? I thought Saul was king of the land. But what, what they were doing was Possibly they were mocking him, but, but possibly they were simply acknowledging what many Israelites felt, that uh, Saul may have slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands, and he's the real king of the country here. David quickly realized that he had placed himself in a dangerous position. His plan was not working, as he had hoped. Now, the question is, was he running ahead of the Lord? Did he spend days in prayer saying, oh God, should I go to Gath? <laughs> Pretend like I'm just somebody looking for a job with my men? What Was he trying to save himself from Saul by his own wisdom and strength without really trusting in the Lord? And I think this is important for us to think about because this is our own temptation, especially in America where we have this spirit of independence this spirit of can-do, of rags to riches, you know, the stories of Andrew Carnegie's and John D. Rockefeller's and others who, who rose from virtually penniless to becoming the richest men in the world. We, we have this kind of tradition, and so we're tempted, I think, to do what David did here. Does God carry out his purposes through the words and actions of his people? Yeah, often he does. Often he does. But those words and actions must be founded in explicit faith in God through prayer and seeking God's faith, face and seeking God's guidance before those actions and those words take place. We often read, in fact, many people claim as their life verses, the, the passage in Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. How often do we say that? How often do we think of that passage? But how often do we obey that passage? I think in many ways 
David was leaning here on his own understanding. I've got a good idea. I'll go down to Gath. Saul will never find me there. And even if he does, what can he do about it? I can just stand there and twiddle my thumbs at him because I'm in Philistia. He has to play the part of a fool in order to extricate himself from this situation. To convince Achish that he was no threat. No, I'm not really the David that killed Goliath. I'm, I'm no longer mentally competent anymore. You know, the elevator doesn't come to the top floor anymore. And I'm not worthy of you taking vengeance upon. He had to take on the role of a madman. That has been very, that'd be very humiliating for David. It'd be very humi humiliating for me, I know. Now, God had sent Samuel to anoint David as the successor to Saul. God had already launched his plan. So David has put God in the position of having to step in and save him to convince Achish to believe David's masquerade. There are people who tout the slogan, God helps those who help themselves. I want to say again, as I've said before, this is terrible theology. It's actually the opposite of what both Scripture both teaches and exemplifies. The truth is, and I think we all have to admit this, God helps those who can't help themselves. This was God help those who get caught helping themselves. <laughs> yeah, God helps those who have messed up trying to help themselves. This is really the foundation of the doctrine of the atonement. You all know the passage in Romans 5, but God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we cleaned up our act, not after we got good enough, but while we were rotten, dirty, low-down sinners, Christ died for us. That's not God helping those who can help themselves. That's God helping those who have no hope of helping themselves. Well, God did help David out of this situation, potentially lethal situation, not because God was obliged to help someone who helped himself, but because he had already chosen David to be the key player in his messianic plan. So David was kind of putting God in a pickle. <laughs> Not that you can really put God in a pickle. Because God knew it all would happen long before it ever happened. Achish's reaction here is classic. Do I lack madmen that you brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Don't ever say there isn't great humor in Scripture. <laughs> Do I lack madmen? <laughs> uh, guy should have been in Hollywood. Did Achish really believe that David was insane? I mean, after all, David came and presented himself and, and basically asked for a job as a mercenary. Didn't seem so insane then. But as soon as they started saying, aha, this is David, the one about whom, you know, is slain his thousands, slain his thousands of what? You know, uh, Philistines, tens of thousands. We'll, we'll, we'll read in a minute from the Psalms that David was in really deep danger here. But what does Achish do? Achish allowed what David was doing to be true, and he allowed him to go free. Concerning what Achish did here, commentator Eugene Merrill says, this is in line with the practice of the ancient world to regard the insane as being in some sense an evil portent and so exempt from harm lest the gods be provoked. In other words, lay your hand on an insane man, the gods are going to get you. 
David wrote two psalms about this experience. It's what we like about David. That's what, one of the things that makes David so, so good for us to study is because he learned from his mistakes. In Psalm 56, we discover that David was really actually in danger and that he learned a great lesson from this. Let, let's look at a few verses from Psalm 56. If you read uh, up above the psalm, this, which of course is not the inspired part of the psalm, but is nevertheless the traditional heading, it, it tells us that it was uh, uh, given at the time that uh, the Philistines had seized him, that is David, in Gath. And so David says, Be gracious, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words, and their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life because of wickedness. Cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. David was obviously in a very, very serious situation there, and he knew it. He realized he had put himself in a, It's like being up on the, on the face of El Capitan and losing your rope. Here I am 2,000 feet up on solid granite, and now what do I do, you know, kind of deal. That's the way David felt, and God was his only hope, and God was his only help. If you turn to the 34th Psalm, you'll discover that in the traditional heading of the psalm, we, we have these words. A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Abimelech being the, the, the king of Gath. We, we, we discover that this particular wonderful psalm was written in response to that very situation. And this is probably one of the most often quoted psalms of the whole book of psalms. And what we discover is David apparently learned from this experience of being in the jaws of death, facing death in the eye, and yet God delivered him. And so he wrote this beautiful psalm, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord the humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For though, to those who fear him, there is no want. Young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life? and loves length of days that he may say good. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. 
Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Isn't, isn't it amazing how many, as you read through that, how many little choruses leap out at you? <laughs> choruses that have been made from various verses in here. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears, delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. None of them who takes refuge in him will be condemned. There's the gospel in a nutshell. There's the whole statement of who God is to us in every situation. When we are afraid, when we're brokenhearted, when we're downtrodden, who is our help and who is our strength? How does David know this? Well, he was inspired by the Spirit, but he was inspired by the Spirit in a situation where he ex experienced the reality of the danger and of the forces of evil. Nowhere in either of these Psalms, 56 or 34, does David credit his deliverance to his own actions? Well, I played the mad madman and so I got out of there, har, har, har. No. He credits God for his victory, his deliverance. He gives God credit for the grace and the mercy that he poured out on him to deliver him even though he had been a fool. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know if you've ever been a fool, but I have. And I'm really grateful that God delivers us as he did David. Well, next week we'll begin the 22nd chapter, which has a, a really major tragedy in it, as we'll see. And 